0: And answers. How do you effectively share Christ with a hardened skeptic who is argumentative and hostile? Jesus often faced hostile individuals in His ministry, for Jesus was a master apologist and evangelist, and instead of arguing with the individual, Jesus often asked pointed questions and turned the conversation back in His favor. This is a skill every Christian can learn and use when they encounter a hostile individual. You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat presents part two of his message titled, Killer Questions, where he equips Christians with key questions to ask when engaging a hostile skeptic. Let's join Pat now as he presents practical methods of sharing Christ with a hardened skeptic. Second question,
1: how did you come to that conclusion? This helps you understand the basis for their beliefs. And you don't just let someone state their position, you ask them for the evidence. What's the evidence that supports your claim? You see, the burden of proof isn't always on the Christian. You've got to put the burden of proof back on them. See if they can give you good reasons for why they believe, or if they just feel strongly about something. It's not always your job to defeat their claims or out- argue them. But their job to defend theirs. And while listening to their explanation, ask, is it plausible? Okay. Is it probable? And see if their reasons and evidence are credible or not. For example, we were at Mount Hermon the other year, and there was a delightful Jewish young man who came, and he was an atheist. And I asked him, I said, you know, we are sitting down, I said, so? I said, now, let's start from being. Do you believe in God? And he said, well, I think all religion is the source of evil and conflict in this world. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I think just religion is evil. And I said, well, how did you come to that conclusion? And he said, well, look at the Crusades. He said, I've studied the Crusades quite a bit, the incredible atrocities that were created. And my studies, deep studies of the Crusades show that religion is evil. And I said, okay which crusade there's seven several of them never made it to the you know the holy land which one And he said oh i said well never mind how long did the Crusades last in the scope of christian church history He said, well i guess i really don't know about the crusades you know i said oh so how did you come to your conclusion and he looked he said well i guess i'm really not that sure you know and i said oh Okay, well, I said, could I explain a little bit to you how the Crusades came about? He said, oh, okay. And so we had a great discussion. And in the end, he came to realize, well, his belief about religion being evil was false. Now, the next question you ask is related to the second one. And it's this, how do you know it's true? Similar to the previous question, we are finding out why they believe and how good is their evidence. Often, for the first time, they need to clearly state why they are so sure of their position. And often, they discover they do not have solid grounds for their position. For example, you know, I was on a plane speaking with a Buddhist. We were talking and we got on the topic of reincarnation. He said, well, when you die, you come back, you know, in a different form, all of that, until you break the cycle and enter into nirvana. And the question I asked him was, how do you know that's true? And he, no one had ever asked him that before. And he said, well, no one knows what happens after death. No one can possibly know. He said, you're a Christian, how do you know? And I said, well, thought you'd never ask. I said, the reason I know is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he looked at me and said, how do you know that's true? And boom, we went into the defense of the resurrection. And when we were done, you could see you know, the Buddhist priest, he was in his full garb, really beginning to think through the issue. Fourth, where did you get your information? This allows you to... Evaluate the source of the person's information, and often, the person may not have a reliable source, but he has never been asked. For example, a month ago, a man was talking to me and said, the four gospels are not the oldest gospels, are not the earliest records of Christ. There are many other secret gospels found in Egypt that predate the gospels. So I asked him, I said, where did you get this information? And he said, well, everybody knows that. And I said, well, I'm not too familiar with that. Where did you get that information? And he kind of hemmed in hawed and everything. And I said, so how reliable is your information? Where did you get your information? And finally, he reluctantly admitted. He got it from the novel, The Da Vinci Code. Okay? <laughs> and I said, well, there you go. You know, I said, do you believe everything you read in, in a fiction novel? And the final question, what if you're wrong? The implications of the other worldviews and religions are not so bad. If Hinduism, I don't make it, I'm simply reincarnated and I can try again. In Buddhism, I go through the cycle of rebirth and try again. In Atheism, I go six feet under and that's it. Extinction. But the implications of rejecting Christ are quite severe. Alright, and what if you're wrong? Then you spend eternity separated from God forever in a place called hell. This one I use only if a person is not taking uh, the issue seriously or it's a good way to lead them with a lingering thought. For example, when I was in Eastern Europe in Hungary, I was talking to a man and I said he was an atheist and I said, Do you know the implications of atheism? If atheism is true, there's no purpose for your existence, no meaning, no significance. You're an accident in time and space, you live, you die, and you're extinct. And eventually, one day, all of mankind will be extinct, and the universe will one day run out of energy and die. So what difference does it ever make that we were ever here? And I shared with him a couple quotes from the atheists. Well, then he looked at me, and he said, well... Okay, I'll eat, drink, party till I die. Okay, I can live with that. And I thought, oh, well, most people can't, you know. But then I asked him the question, I said, all right, but what if you're wrong? You eat, drink, party, and you die, and then you stand before God, and you need to give an account of your life, and he's going to ask you, why should I grant you eternal life? I said, what if you're wrong? I said, is that a game you want to play without even investigating The facts behind Jesus Christ. He thought about it for a while, and I could tell as we departed, I put the pebble in his shoe. He was kind of bothered by it, okay? And a couple weeks later, a missionary friend there in Hungary said he started showing up to the Bible study, all right? Now, as you ask these questions, you need to find the flaws. Look for the flaws in the reasoning of the person you are talking to. Look for contradictory statements. For example, my friend who said, well, I can't believe in God because of the existence of evil. Well, how can you define evil without an absolute standard of good? And where does that absolute standard of good come from? A moral law must come from a moral lawgiver. Or the person that says, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Right? You simply ask them, is that an absolute truth statement? Look for hasty or overgeneralizations. Hasty overgeneralizations accept these conclusions because of an atypical or an unusual case supports it. For example, the person who says, Well, I know a Christian pastor who embezzled all the money from his church to use for his own purposes. Therefore, all Christians are hypocrites. Okay? Right? Third, Look for straw man arguments. These are probably the most popular. A straw man or misunderstandings of the Bible, false caricatures, misunderstandings of biblical teachings. These are some of the most popular, I find, with non-believers. For example, in our conversation the other day with the unbeliever, he said, well, even if there is a God, I can't believe the God of the Bible. I said, why not? And he said, well, because there's so many contradictions about God in the Bible. And I said, such as? And he says, well, God is perfect and loving, but God says in the Old Testament, He is a jealous God. How can He be perfect? That's, that's an insecure God. And I said, well, there's a good side of jealousy and a bad side. And you've misunderstood it here. If you saw your wife, flirting with another man who intends to do her harm or take advantage of her. Isn't there a jealousy that would burn inside of you? He said, yeah. And I said, that's a good thing, right? Do you want to protect her from what is evil? And he said, well, yeah. And I said, well, that's what he means when God says he's a jealous God. It's a misunderstanding of the Bible or biblical teachings. Next, judging Christianity by the failures of its followers and not its founders. Okay. For example, we often hear, oh, the Crusades, how are we going to go out there slaughtering people? Well, the Crusades only lasted about a hundred years, unlike Jihad in Islam which has lasted fifteen hundred years. Jihad was integral to the spread of Islam, Christianity was spread by the preaching of the Gospel. Big difference. and. I can show you in the biblical text, where killing in the name of Christ those contrary to everything Jesus and the apostles taught. And we don't judge Christianity by the failure of its followers, we judge it by its founder, Jesus Christ. Can you picture Jesus Christ there, slaughtering people with a sword there? Probably could not, alright? So that's another error, judging Christianity by the failure of its followers and not its founder. And then we have the genetic fallacy. Something should be rejected because of its source. Often I hear, well, you can't trust the Gospels because the authors were biased disciples of Christ. Well, that is the genetic fallacy. Alright, yes, they were followers of Christ. But what does the evidence show? Okay? The evidence is neutral. The evidence is not biased. What does the evidence Show. And then you look for a lack of good evidence to support their case. So as you ask these questions, you look for the fallacies in their particular reasoning. Alright? Let's do a exercise here using what we've learned. Number one, science has shown that Christianity is not true. Hey, this is a conversation I had with my cousin, who's a PhD in physics. Science has shown that Christianity is not true. What question do you ask? What do you mean by that? And he said, well, the Big Bang has shown that the universe is simply an accident and came from nothing and we don't need a creator. And the next question you ask is what? What do you mean by that? He said, well, you know, uh, two atoms collided to form this universe. And I said, explain that for me a little bit. How does the collision of two atoms form this intricately designed great universe that we have? And he thought about it for a while. He said, well, I don't know. It just happened. And I said, wouldn't that be like saying a tornado came through a junkyard and created, you know, when it was gone, it created a 747 jet, full functioning and running? And he said, well, yes. And I said, what's the probability of that happening just by chance? And he said, well, highly unlikely, but it happened. And I said, doesn't that require a whole lot of faith? And he looked and he said, well, yes. I said, that's why I'm not an atheist. I don't have faith to be an atheist. It takes more faith to believe that than an intelligent creator to put this universe together. He's moved from being an atheist to now omni-religious man. He believes there's a God, but he believes all religions, you know, are equally valid and true. But we got them one step closer. right? From atheism to theism. Next one. Religion is the cause of wars and evil in this world. What question do you ask? What do you mean by that? Well, this is a conversation I had just a few months ago. And the guy said, Oh, well, the Crusades. Okay? And I said, explain to me the Crusades. Which one? There's seven of them. Okay? Explain it to me. What instigated the Crusades? Did the Christians just say, hey, let's go kill some Muslims in the Holy Land? And he thought about it for a while He goes, well, I don't know. I said, well, for 400 years, the Christians were wiped out of North Africa, they were wiped out of the Middle East. They came to conquer Constantinople, the capital of the Christian world. And that's when the Bishop of Constantinople called for help. And that's when began the Crusades. And I said, well, we it wasn't completely instigated out of nothing. Well, how about this one? All religions are about faith in things that cannot be proven. For example, I believe when you die, you go six feet under, and that is it. There's no reason to believe anything else. What do you ask there? Yeah, what you wrong, or how do you know that's true? How do you know that there's not an immaterial essence that survives the death of a physical body? How do you know? And the atheist thought about it for a while, and he goes, well, nobody can know. I said, isn't that a statement of faith on your part? And he said, well, yes. And I said, I it takes faith to be an atheist, huh? He looked at me and said, well, how do you know you're right? I said, I thought you'd never ask. You know, we went through the resurrection. So the five killer questions are great to use on a hardened skeptic. Here's another one. We call this the backseat driver, or it's a version of reductio ad absurdum. Oh. This is the backseat driver. This is where you use leading questions to make your point. leading question allows a person to see his flaws and lead him to your point. So in this technique, you need to know a little bit of the other person's position and the flaws that you want them to see. And in this technique, you kind of got to figure out what your end goal is and the questions you want to ask to take him there. So you listen carefully to the inconsistencies or weaknesses and instead of being on the defensive, you ask the questions. For example, just a few months ago I was talking with two Muslims who are claiming that Islam is the true religion and Christianity is not. And actually that Islam is the fulfillment of Christianity. And so they said the Quran is the perfect book from heaven with no flaws, but the Bible has all kinds of flaws. I asked them this question. So instead of arguing with them, I just asked them the question, does Islam teach that Jesus is the divine Son of God? Does Islam teach that he died upon the cross and rose again? And they said, absolutely not. Jesus did not die. He did not rise again. And I said, alright. on what historical basis does Muhammad reject the death and resurrection of Christ? It's the one of, of the best attested to Ancient historical events there is. On what historical basis does Muhammad reject the death and resurrection of Christ? And they thought about it for a while and they said, well, the Quran says. I said, that's a circular reasoning. The Quran comes 600 years after the Bible. The death and resurrection of Christ been preached from the very beginning. On what historical basis does Muhammad reject the death and resurrection of Christ? And they thought about it for a while and they said, well, we don't know. And I said, Therein lies a huge error in the Quran. And there's a historical error that shows you this is not the perfect book that has come down out of heaven. And you can see that bothered them for a while. They were kind of quiet and they kinda of had their head down, I kinda of felt bad for them, so I kinda of changed the subject. You know. But as we left said, Hey, think about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and on what historical basis does Muhammad build that on? Because If it's false, the Qur'an is false, and Jesus Christ is indeed the divine Son of God and the Savior of the world. Technique number three. Hey, we call this driving them off the cliff. It's a form of reductio ad absurdum. In other words, you adopt the other person's worldview and ideas and see where it takes you. Often it takes you to absurd conclusions, which you point out to the individual, Often people do not see the logical implications of their ideas, you you need to point them out. Expose the inconsistencies and unlivability of their particular position. And three steps to this process. State the idea clearly. Often you can say, let me see if I understand you correctly. And see what this principle leads if it is consistently lived out. And if you find a problem, point it out and invite the other person. To consider its implications. Okay, Jesus often did that, right? In Matthew chapter 12, after he delivered the demon-possessed person, the Pharisees came to him and said, "Well, do you know how he delivers demons? He does it by the power of the devil, by the power of Beelzebul." And Jesus says this. Well. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself can stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by the power of Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Jesus drove them off the cliff. He said, Alright, let's take your implications and see where it leads. And it led to ridiculous conclusions. Same thing you can do with moral relativism. If morality is not absolute, we all create right and wrong that can't be lived out correctly. Alright? And simply point it out to them. Alright? I remember doing this in a guy's own He talked about moral relativity and how morality is relative and all this. And so I said, Oh, okay. So I grabbed his car keys and I left my car keys and I started walking out the door. And he said, hey, that's wrong. You can't do that. I said, why not? He said, well, you're hurting me. I said, well, how's that bad? And he said, well, you can't do that. I said, why? And he said, well, you can't leave me without a car. And I said, no, you have mine. I said, I drive, you know, my profession, I drive a lot more than you do. I need a new car. You don't look like you're financially hurting. This car takes you where you need to go. Hey, no problem. He said, you can't do that. That's stealing. And I said, are you appealing to a higher moral law? You know, we just drove him off the cliff. We share with them the implications of his particular belief system. All right. Now, how do you get good at this? Well, practice. Practice your skills in real life situations. That's the best way to improve. After each encounter, reflect on the conversation and see how you could have responded better. Reflect after each encounter and say, did I know enough about the issue? What do I need to improve upon? After football games, what do teams do? They look at the films and see how they could have done better. Same thing we need to do after our conversation. Third, anticipate a conversation. Think of the questions and how you would respond and what questions you should have asked. And with your wife or with your friend, see if you can practice on them. For be aware when questions are used against you to challenge your position. And finally, how do you deal with the steamroller? Steamrollers are persons with strong personalities that overpower you with their strong personalities. These people often present challenges quickly, one after the other. After giving you just a brief moment, and when they see you have a response, they interrupt you constantly and bombard you with questions. They constantly interrupt, once they see that you may have an answer. And they cut you off and bombard you with more questions. Often they do not listen to what you have to say, they're simply trying to take you off track. Most are not interested in a good discussion. They want to win through intimidation or the raising of their voice. In this kind of situation, a hey, most must be confronted politely, but often strongly. The first thing you do with a steamroller, hey, okay, you need to stop him. First step is to request courtesy on his part. Hey, okay, when he interrupts, ignore his point, and when there's a break, kindly say, All right, if it's okay, I'd like to finish my point before you bring up another. If that doesn't work, you need to go to the second step, which is to shame him. Ignore the new challenges he has raised from you, and when there's a break in his speaking, when he takes a breath, you need to be a little bit stronger and say, Can I ask you a favor? I would love to answer your question, but you keep interrupting. Could I have a few moments to develop my point here? Hopefully he will feel a little embarrassed and apologize and, and calm down. And most of them do at this point. But when all else fails, like Jesus said, don't cast your crows before swine. Simply leave him. Okay? Just let it go. Jesus said in Matthew 7.6, do not cast your crows before swine. And there are times in Jesus' ministry, right, where he, he knew that his adversaries were not asking with honest intentions and he simply wouldn't answer them. Okay, And he simply just left. You can end the conversation by saying, well, it's obvious you don't want to discuss the issue, so perhaps when you're ready to discuss, we could meet some other time. All right? And kindly exit from the scene. And remember, you don't have to win every debate. If the guy doesn't want to discuss it, even Jesus would not cast his prose before swine. Even Jesus knew there was a time when you simply just say, alright, when you're ready to discuss or your intentions are more honest, I'll begin to seriously engage you in conversation. Well, Second Corinthians 10.5 says, We demolish all arguments and every lofty speculation that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. In dealing with a hardened skeptic, don't always feel the burden is upon you to prove your point. Learn to turn the tables and put the burden back on him and learn how to gently expose the flaws in his arguments. Then when you do, you often bring him one step closer and they'll be a lot more open to hearing your presentation when you come back another time. Remember, evangelism is a process Our goal is to get them one step closer. And sometimes getting them one step closer is exposing the fallacy of their arguments and leaving them with that pebble in their shoe. All right? Thank you very much. Look forward to seeing you in the next couple of seminars.
0: This concludes Pat's seminar Equipping Christians to Engage Tough Skeptics. I hope you receive practical tools to use when you're sharing your faith in Christ. If you missed any part of this study, log on at evidenceandanswers.org, and you can listen to the entire message and enjoy other great resources right there on the site. Pat is the director of the Pacific Apologetics Center, a subsidiary ministry of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer, And with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers Radio Show is a ministry of the Pacific Apologetics Center. Join us each week as Pat and his friends provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.